a choice right now, right now, between fear and love. It's just a rock. Out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth. Expounding reality. A population of citizens capable of critical thinking. We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. There's a, a level of reality where everything dissolves into an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. That's very profound. Very Expanding reality. Welcome to Expanding Reality. I am your host, Brandon Thomas. On this episode, we have Graham Rendell. He wrote an incredible book called UFOs Before Roswell, European Foo Fighters, 1940 to 1945. Now that specific time range is what he focused on because of how many accounts. He's got tons of accounts in this book that have never been reported anywhere else. His research, guys, is unbelievably fascinating. He takes his interests, which are ufology, aviation, and German secret weapons, and marries them together in this one outstanding book. So of course, that will be linked down in the show notes as well as all the other ways to find Graham. Uh, also down there real quick is the uh, link to the website. So expandingrealitypodcast.com. That is where links to all the socials will be, uh, YouTube, Patreon, if you wanna contribute. Um, we've got all of the like Instagrams and stuff like that. All of it's linked through that one hub. On that as well is going to be our merchandise, which is through TeePublic. Very excited to partner with them, as well as Rockfin for our premium content. So uh, also very excited to partner with them. Um, so guys, let's just get right into this episode. Graham is phenomenal. You will love this conversation. He is so smart. It is a lot of fun. So uh, let's get to it here. Uh, this is Graham Rendell. All right, ladies and gentlemen, a very exciting episode today. We have Graham Randall on. You wrote an incredible book, UFOs Before Roswell. Uh, of course, the European Foo Fighters, 1942-1945. It's a phenomenal breakdown. You did some incredible work in this. Uh, as you can see, I'm holding it here for the visual audience. It is incredibly dense. You did some incredible research in this thing, man. And um, your, your focus on the time period and the UFOs in particular, the Foo Fighters rather, uh, are fascinating to me. So um, tell the audience just a little bit about yourself and we'll get cracking. Okay, yeah. My name's Graham Randall. I live in the north of England in the UK. Uh, I've had this interest, as you say, for in aviation, but also in uh, German secret weapons and World War II in general, but also ufology for the best part of 40 to 45 years now. And in the Foo Fighters, these three interests of mine that have ran through my life came together um, so it was a perfect opportunity to write about something that I felt that I knew about rather than trying to research something that I didn't have much, much of a clue about. Um, and I thought that, you know, if I hadn't written this book, then maybe nobody might have. Um, and this was a book I wanted to read myself, but it didn't seem to be available. So I felt like I had to sit down and read it, uh, to write it rather. So yeah, so there it is. And it's an incredible book. Your breakdown, like I said, your research and that time period is very, very important. That's right before the large flap, you know, with Kenneth Arnold, uh, you also had Roswell occurring just after this. But the point of interest in this war in particular with the high strangeness that occurred, and it seems like this happened right at that time. It seems like before World War One and stuff, 
stuff, you didn't have as much of these reports. You had some really anomalous type of things, but they weren't directly related to an aeronautics type of phenomena that seemed to be an enemy combatant type of technology, or it was confused as that because everybody thought that they were weapons from the other side. So this particular uh, point of interest is absolutely fascinating. So if you don't mind, let's start super basic, man. Uh, give us what a Foo Fighter is. Yeah, so the name Foo Fighter was coined by an American serviceman. Uh, it was actually an Air Force radar observer who was serving with a, a night fighter unit who were based in eastern France in, in the winter of 1944, uh, November 1944 to be precise. And for the next six months or so, the, the crews of this particular unit and others in Belgium and also northern, France, uh, northern Italy, uh, flying over that, that area as well, started to see red lights and other types of lights flying around, sometimes following their aircraft, sometimes chasing after them. Um, and if that was the case, they tried all sorts of maneuvers to get them off their tails, but they just stayed there. And then, the, the, of course, they disappeared off their own volition. And the, the crews were quite rattled about these things because they didn't, as you say, they thought they were probably German secret weapons. And there was no way of you know shaking them off. But they weren't doing anything hostile. But it was just a very, very weird set of events. Um, you mentioned before about... I'll just I'll just go on and say this if you don't mind. The um, you mentioned about the time frame and the specificness of it. Now, there's actually a popular misconception really that ran through from about November uh, from December 1945 when a magazine article was published, the first public mention really of the Foo Fighters, right through to about the mid 1990s, that it was a very very small localized phenomenon, uh, and that basically comes to by of, of a magazine article which had about half a dozen different reports from one particular intelligence report that went up the food chain, detailing some of these cases, but actually there were a lot more, but. All that was in the public realm were these small number of cases and a couple from the Pacific War and another one from a, uh, a squadron that was operating the daylight over Germany. So that's all the people had to go on. So when you have you look at the UFO books that were written in the 50s, 60s, et cetera, 70s, et cetera, they have very little information on the Foo Fighters. So, of course, naturally, people thought it was just some very, very small scale thing um, and it wasn't that you know, worth bothering with. So that's why a lot of you know, modern ufology starts with Kenneth Arnold with Roswell, 1947. You know, what's interesting you said about the localized phenomena of these, because it reminds me of things like the Min Min Lights, like Richard Rokeby's book, uh, The Lights on Burton Dasset Hill, um, over there in War Warwickshire, I believe. And, uh, Warwickshire, then, yeah. Yes, and then you've got uh, the Marfa Lights over here in, in West Texas. So there does seem to be this sort of localized phenomena type thing, and then you think even further to things like the Skinwalker Ranch, about the meadow, Trey Hudson's um, work. And you think that maybe this is something having to do with like an atmospheric phenomena, uh, something to do with aquifers under the ground, some electromagnetic type of a thing. But it is interesting that these appear to be under intelligent control rather than just sort of lights in the distance. I like this. Uh, I, do, I do think that this is an excellent observation. So what do you think the Foo Fighters are? Well, if I could tell you that, I could probably solve the rest of the ufology riddle as well. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. So I can't, I can't do that. I was never, ever going to be able to tell people what they were. I think that's, that's probably for other people to try and work out sometime distant in the future when we have much more information. This is um, effectively like you know, baby steps into, into this particular phenomenon in the time frame that I'm talking about and we're talking about here. Um, I don't think this book was ever going to be able to solve the riddle. It, it's more for people to then use as a springboard for their own research into you know, maybe going through their own family history in terms of the, you know, people who, who fought in the war and they can look through things like logbooks or maybe do their own research in, in official records. 
records because there are more records in America and even Germany, which I haven't looked at uh, to, you know, so far. So the, the scope for much more examination of this particular phenomenon. Now, you also mentioned about you know, the specificness of it in, in terms of its locality. Well, it is to a certain extent, but actually the phenomenon was seen right across Europe. So there were reports from the North Cape of Norway down to North Africa, from the Bay of Biscay of France, right across to the Eastern Front. So yes, it was possibly localized in terms of the reporting in certain areas, but actually uh, that might have been just down to the nature of the units, how good they were at reporting things and how diligent the intelligence officers were. Because the, well, what I mentioned before about the list that was sent up the chain, that was actually one particular intelligence officer from one squadron going above and beyond what was expected of him uh, because other, other you know, similar uh, staff members from other squadrons weren't doing that. And if you look at the RAF units, uh, which I've got some information in the book about, some of them are quite patchy in terms of what they wrote down after the raids. They, they took, some of them were writing down what the crews said verbatim, otherwise or sometimes they were just writing down little bits of it, and sometimes they were ignoring it full stop. So there might be quite a lot more reports out there we're not privy to and may never, ever be privy to, but they may have happened. This is an interesting point you bring up because we do talk about like pilots that are scared to report things, you know, because they'll get their wings pulled. They won't be able to fly. They'll be grounded. And so you're really depending on the accuracy and the forthcomingness of these pilots reporting these things, not only accurately, but at all. I think that that's a, a brilliant way to put it, because simply put, I mean, like you said, we may never know um, what happened with this. Another thing that's interesting to me is the the as far as the locality goes, would be like ley lines, would be these types of areas where high strangeness phenomena seem to occur, but especially uh, in times of, I'll just say, vibrationally dense uh, histories where where you had like a world war going on. I mean, these are things that if they are under intelligent control or something, they'd probably want to check out and see like, okay, what are these monkeys doing with this, you know, these airplanes and all that stuff? They're flying around, destroying each other. We got to check it out and be kind of observational with it. And then because you hear other other reports of UFOs kind of shutting down um, nuclear missile silos and uh, intervening in a way to where they kind of take matches away from children. I know is um, I, I want to say that was um, Senator Reid quoting on the Phenomena movie with James Fox. Uh, it's like we're taking matches away from kids. Uh, you guys shouldn't be playing with that stuff, right? So it is interesting that the observational aspect of this as well. Uh, do you think that there's anything to that observation? It's possible um, because people have theorized, you know, in the past that the modern day UFO phenomenon started with the first atom bombs being exploded. And that's why it kicked off in, say, 46 with the ghost rockets and then 47 sightings. But you have to remember that fission was probably invented, was in 1938, and the Manhattan Project kicked off in 1942. So if they were aware of maybe people, you know, our potential as a species, I mean, I'm just theorizing here. This is not, you know, a hard and fast argument, but they could have been looking at us much earlier. But also, it might be, as you say, it might be just the fact there was a world conflict going on and it was all oh, look to see what the monkeys are doing you know yeah. so or it could be simply just a case of there were ten thousand people flying around the skies each night yes yes you know it could be simply just could be just down to numbers and the kind of frequency and the location of people flying around not just in the daytime because there were things seen in the day as well but also more at night so people might have seen weird lights and other phenomenon because there was the sh just down the sheer weight of numbers you know, and it's funny you mentioned the year 1938, uh, because wasn't there a report of a Nazi recovered uh, crashed UFO in that time period? There are stories of various ones. There's certainly one from Poland, which is supposed to have been given to the Germans. There are other ones earlier as well. Now, with all these kind of stories about 
the Nazis being involved with flying discs, and you've you've looked at my book, you'll see how I go into some of that in, in detail. It's it's a kind of thing you have to take with a pinch of salt because there's absolutely no evidence. There never has been evidence. There's a lot of people claim they've had evidence, but when it boils, when it's boiled down, it comes down to a few newspaper reports from the early 1950s with some so-called designers saying that they were involved in various projects, but none of them have ever been able to offer any proof for these things to ever exist. And all you would need is just be, say, a requisition form for some materials or for some testing locations or just for some personnel in terms of building or or flying one of these things. And that would be enough to blow the whole thing wide open, but nothing exists. And yet you've got some fairly esoteric um, secret weapon projects, which are documented in full in terms of you know, f- uh, photographic evidence of, of trials, of interviews with designers and, and documentation for th- you know, things like I just t- spoke about before, but none of this ever exists for the flying disks. And for such a sophisticated project to, to occur, you would need a lot of things to happen in order to put it in place. That's not something you can cook up in, in a backyard somewhere. So I don't believe them much, I'm afraid. No, and that's fine. That's a, it's a very, um, you take a very methodical look at this. I'm a little more heads in the clouds. I, I'm a very whimsical kind of like, yeah, yeah, it's all possible kind of guy. Fair enough. I, and, and I like that, you know, but it takes uh, looking into research like what you provide for me to kind of come up with these crazy theories. It's like I, I take a real grounded, solid uh, theory like yours and go, well, what if it's time travel? You know, and, and I, I that's just kind of where I go with it uh, because I like to consider all of it. Now, um, there are kind of like what you said about the reports. Um about Nazi secret weapons, we of course think of the Bell or the Wunderweppen that they were talking about, and then allegedly there's been a uh, concrete structure that they found over there, and that they say that's where it was housed to test, and you know all of these interesting things, and they're fun, man. I mean, these stories are so much. Oh fun. yeah, they are. And you yeah. look at things like uh, Operation High Jump, you know, and going down to New Schwabenland in Antarctica and the battle, you know, that took place there and just handed, you know, the military their hat uh, and sent them home, the U.S. military. And, you know, all of these things are so much fun. Do you do you think any validity to any of it, even though you can't connect the dots directly? Do you know, do you know what? A long time ago. So I, I heard about those stories probably 35, maybe almost 40 years ago. And I thought they were fun then. I was at the time, I was quite young, and it was almost like I wanted to believe those things were true because they were so exciting and so radical and just so beyond what accepted wisdom was. But then you get a bit older and a bit wise and you start looking things and you try and look for facts and you just can't find any whatsoever. And then the things that people say about, oh, well, this is what actually happened. Well, when you look into it, no, it didn't. So therefore you can blow holes in a lot of it. And then what you're left with is just people's stories, um, you know, or, or, or a nice little narrative, but actually doesn't add up to much at the end of the day, because there is simply no evidence ever to, to back up any of it. Even just a small shred would be enough. But yes, there was a time when I used to think, oh, that's really interesting. I wish that was true. And I think it's a bit of this kind of wish fulfillment um, and also there might be some kind of neo-Nazi element back in the 60s when a lot of these stories apparently appeared um, for some of this nonsense and I will call it nonsense because I do go into, I don't go into the bell because that's just completely nuts basically, <laughs> I, can explain, I can explain why that, I, I feel that way I don't go in that far but I do talk about the German flying discs and I do talk about some other 
radical weapons that a particular Italian author came up with in the 1960s. And a lot of people who talk about the Foo Fighters go back to that as well as a potential uh, explanation. And if you look at websites, you know, um, about the Foo Fighters, his name and these things crop up all the time. So it was a case of playing whack-a-mole, basically, with a lot of these kind of you know stories about the discs and about the aerial flak mines. And I thought the, the um, De Glocker, the bell, as you say, was just one step too far. And I didn't mention it by name, but I say, look, if you want to do your own search, you know, go knock yourself out. Because basically, it was a Polish guy who reckoned he'd seen um, an intelligence document that the Polish army had received based on an interview of an SS leader who had been based in Poland. And it was about some facility that had been underground at the end of the war in the mountains. And as you say, this facility above it, which was um, this kind of concrete uh, structure in, in a circle. And it seems to be that was actually the, the basis of a water tank. Um, but also the police, the, the SS police leader, the, the, the guy that who's supposed to have provided this conversation or this interview, um, he was shipped off to Norway at the end of 1944. He was never even in Poland for the last six months of the war anyway. So I'm not entirely sure how he could be privy to a, a secret weapons program right at the end of the war. So it, it, none of it really makes sense. You know, when you start digging into it, just even just superficially, it, it, it's a kind of, and then I hear things about the guy who came up with all this stuff. Uh, Witkowski, I believe they call him, and some of the other we- the books he'd written about other German secret weapons, and some of the reviews are a bit kind of, nah, that's not entirely kind of great, that book. And I just think, okay, I'm just going to leave it, I'm just going to leave it there, and I'm not going to go any further because I'm, I don't want to go, I don't want to spend my time chasing after kind of ghosts, basically. <laughs> I love it. You just see a book about Nazis and flying discs, and you're like, one star, get out of here. Not even worth well, my time. Enough, <laughs> I mean, my library back here, I do have books on, on you know, sort of that kind of stuff. And I have entertained it in the past in so much as it's good background. And I will look at it. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna just going to go, oh, I don't believe that without looking at it. You know, don't get me wrong. But I need... I need a bit more than what's there because everything that I've read so far just points back to the certain handful of things, which when you look at those and you get them in your hand, they just crumble away and that you're left with absolutely nothing. Whereas with other UFO reports, you can chase back to source documents. It might not get you anywhere, but at least you've got something to, you know, to actually hold or to look at where with all that, you've got nothing, I'm afraid. So yeah, that's what it is. I respect this part of you as a researcher, uh, just simply because you really do stick to the facts or stick to the provable evidence, the things you can track down and put hands on, which what you've come up with with just the evidence is fascinating, man. I mean, there's so much cool stuff out there without having to go, you know, down to Antarctica and whoop in the U.S. and in some crazy war uh, from a secret Nazi base, which, again, is fun. That'd be a great place to launch your secret space program out into space, right? It's from down there. Nobody's hanging out. Nobody's paying attention. You can get away with a lot. Uh, You know, but... But one thing that um, I think is interesting and why I think that these things, and, and I'm sure you'll agree with this, these myths occur is because of all the factors, you know, and especially the the occult um, digging that the Nazis were doing, the mysterious element to all this, um, the Thrill Society and all of these different things yep. and how it was connected. And then you look at uh, New Schwabenland uh, because there is evidence that there was a Nazi base down there, right? But they allegedly went down there for whale oil to uh, kind of um, fuel their machines and everything. They, they they sent an expedition down. I think it was either thirty seven or thirty eight, and they had some seaplanes on board the aircraft, the the ship that they sent down. And basically, what they did was they flew the seaplane over 
the coast of Antarctica and drop some little swastika kind of flags oh. from the airplane. That's all they did. It's like, that's ours. <laughs> so, that's it. Uh, yeah, it was basically just a kind of a land grab, a, a kind of ceremonial land grab. But that's all they did. But before the war, um, you know, they didn't really do anything else. They had, I mean, during the war, they had surface raiders, uh, you know, um, kind of like um, converted uh, ships that that were masquerading as, um, you know, as uh, kind of other vessels that were around, were going around into the Indian Ocean to supply submarines and things like that. But they never really went anywhere near Antarctica because there was no point. We didn't have any forces down there. You didn't either. So there was no real kind of advantage to try and weaponize Antarctica in any way. Um, and then the stories about the U-boats going down there at the end of the war. Well, again, there's no kind of evidence. There was one that surfaced in Uruguay or, or Argentina at the end of the war a couple of months afterwards, but it was because they, they didn't get the surrender order until later on. And all the other ones actually went to port. They're all being accounted for. It's not as if any's gone missing anywhere. Um, one of them actually does appear in the book because he ha- the, the, the submarine had some fairly interesting personalities on it in terms of possible transfers to Japan in terms of weapons technology, but nothing there could be actually sort of, you know, looked at as, oh yeah, that was probably your Foo Fighters or something else, you know? So um, the stories about created jet fighters being put into submarines to send to the Japanese, well, no, they couldn't have done that because the submarines weren't big enough. So, um, you know, there's a whole load of stuff that goes around that and you just think, yeah, lovely stories, um, you know, make great books for people, and they have done in the past because people have made maybe not fortune, but they've certainly sold books on the premise. But actually, when you dig in and you try and get to the truth of it, you're left with you know very little, you know, if at all. So yeah, nice stories. But that's all they are, I'm afraid. And man, I I go and I'll I take these things step further again. I I just do this. This is just what I do. Um, <laughs> but I do enjoy those types of things because if you look at it, and there's a lot of arguments to be made. I mean, Jim Jim Mars's book, The Fourth Reich, that uh, Germany lost the war that the Nazis did not. And there's a lot of evidence with this with Project Paperclip. And then you your mind just goes crazy, right? Where oh, yeah. then you say, well, if there was any program with high technology being used, and the Germans lost, but the Nazis did not, maybe the Nazis just grabbed it, brought it over here and said, okay, here's what we know. Uh, we're going to fake everything else. And I, I think that these things are possible and that compartmentalization could happen. Even if like, let's say that we were doing reverse engineering of craft in the U S then that type of stuff would be broken up and so compartmentalized, uh, that it is possible to kind of bury some of that stuff. And especially oh, yeah. in a time before the internet, you know, if it was all hard copies of things and they had one or two copies of it, you just carry that stuff off to your new home America and then you create NASA and then you do, you continue the work, right? There was definitely a lot of brain drain of German scientists and rocket technicians, all the rest of it, that both went both ways, both to America and to uh, Russia and to a very small extent to Britain, you know, just straight after the war. But actually some of it took some time because there were still rounding up people in 1946. Uh, and I mentioned that in the book as well, that there was a lot of people, but there's a lot of people they missed as well. Um, some of the designers are talking about you know, the, those German flying discs that, that, that go back to these designers who said they built these things. A lot of that was down to to them being a bit annoyed because they hadn't like they they wanted a job in America and they saw all these other people being taken off and they would say well what you know I've got a bit of aviation knowledge why can't I go out there and that's why those stories came about but that was all it was it was basically a crude attempt to try and you know get to America to to work on some aviation project and probably when they were dug you know their histories were dug into they were probably found wanting and that's why they never went out there uh, because all these people just you know sort of drop off the radar afterwards but yes you're 
right, there were a lot of people went to America and Russia. And if there were any kind of secret projects going on with, you know, reverse engineering things or just domestic building things domestically, then yes, those would have been the go-to guys because at the end of the war, they had probably the best in terms of theories and the best facilities for testing things. But whether they built anything, that's a completely different uh, sort of question entirely. And the war ran out before a lot of the things that they were talking about could ever get put into, into, into practice because there was a lot of squabbling during the war. There was a lot of political you know, infighting. Um, if if um, you, got, you had to get sponsors, basically, to get any kind of project off the ground in Germany, and yet you could have the, war, the best war-winning project ever. But if some VIP in the Nazi party didn't like you, you got nowhere because, you know, your patronage was everything. And the Horton brothers who built those flying di uh, flying wings, they didn't get sponsors because certain people in the, in the hierarchy of the Nazi party didn't like them, didn't like the kind of um, the cutting edge technology that, that they said they had. So they were, res they resorted to actually building things in a small workshop and they were having to beg, borrow and steal parts. They were having to lie to a jet um, engine manufacturer to try and get um, dummy um, sort of jet engines so they can work out the dimensions to put into the, the first prototype of, of the aircraft they were constructing. They were having to go that far to try and to, sort of get their aircraft airborne. So, you know, the people who kind of turn around and say, oh, well, the Fort Horton flying wings were the basis of the UFO reports. Well, you've got to look at kind of what kind of difficulties they were operating under just to get a prototype flying, you know. So it, it was a lot going on that people put too much credit, I think, into a lot of things that didn't happen or a lot of people who were working on things. They just didn't get as far as people sort of maybe like to think they did or believe they did. Um, it, it's not that simple, I'm afraid. I love the idea, though, that, um, you know, knowledge or uh, sort of some sort of resources withheld from the science because of uh, they just don't care for you. They're like, no, he smells like Schlitz. They, I don't like him. He wore the wrong shoes. And, and it's just denied, you know, shut down. Um, so what do you think, though, is your favorite part about this time period and the research that you've done? What, what is your favorite thing that you've uncovered? I think the thing that I'd like to be maybe just, if I'm going to remember for anything, it would be the number of reports I found from the Balkans during 1944. So that, that, that's a whole collection of reports from one particular part of Europe, which have never been seen in print before. So I, in the course of the research, I started looking at various um, squadron records from the RAF uh, through from 1942 through to the end of the war, uh, because 42 is when most of them start kicking off. There were earlier ones, but the actual reports and the, you know, to get to the nitty gritty, it's very vague. Whereas from, from about 42 onwards, you start seeing in the squadron records mention of strange things like they call them meteors or they call them rockets when such things didn't really, you know, sort of fly around. Um, and then, of course, they turn them into lights and then they call them mystery jets as well later in the war. But there's a reason why these things were called such, uh, such descriptions. But there's a whole slew of reports in over like of Romania, uh, Hungary, Czechoslovakia and southern Austria, right through 1944 and into 1945. And I found them. I found them in various squadron records. And these are from bomber units which were based in Italy, flying over these areas and bombing oil, oil refineries and other installations. Um, and they had, you know, they were seeing red lights as well. They were seeing lights that were following the aircraft. They were seeing things that were whizzing past their airplanes. In, in a couple of cases, some of the Liberator bombers that the RF were flying, the, the American supplied aircraft, they were, these lights were surrounding their aircraft. 
six at a time sometimes. So there was clearly something weird going on because this part of the, the world wasn't being used for testing rockets. So, and the Germans didn't employ operational flak rockets either. Um, the only rocket they actually really put into service was the V2, and it didn't kind of fly that way. Uh, it went straight up, went to about 50,000 feet, then sort of turned on, on, on a side and then, and then flew horizontal for a bit and then dropped down. You know, it, it was the way it flew. It didn't chase after bombers. Uh, the V2 just didn't do that. And it wasn't a V1 flying bomb because a, a pulse jet engine from from a flying bomb was only effective to a few thousand feet that's why they couldn't fit them to fighter jets uh, fighter aircraft because they just were ineffective at high altitude so you wouldn't see them at high altitude either so therefore that can rule those things out um so there's a whole load of reports that i have found i don't know what they are still but they're clearly the same thing that these mystery lights that were seen flying around, sometimes chasing aircraft, sometimes just whizzing past them, but very, very weird. And the crews then didn't know what they were either. But they just, again, they thought they were German secret weapons. And that's the thread that just runs through all the reports because they had no frame of reference. That, that They didn't think they were UFOs or flying saucers. Those words weren't even a lexicon then. They, you know, they just thought, well, they must be German secret weapons because, well, what else would they be? And we, we see this a lot with descriptions of early, uh, what we would describe now as high technological phenomena being described as something that either ancient people or people without a frame of reference would describe these things as like lights in the sky, sky gods, chariots, right? Uh, Ezekiel's wheel, wheel within a wheel type thing. Um, and you, you come across these reports because there is no technological frame of reference. So it's interesting. But... There was a technological frame of reference for rockets, and that's interesting that they were reported as such. Now, I've got a question about that particular report. If rockets weren't being used in the area at the time, was it people reporting them that were familiar with the fact that rockets existed, and so they thought that that's what they were, and so they described them that way? Even though rockets weren't being used? There was an evolution in terms of the way that they were described. So at one time they were called meteors, or actually originally it was just lights. Then it was meteors and rockets, but they were expecting to see things at certain times because the intelligence services were receiving reports of the Germans working with certain types of weapon. And there was a theory that they were probably developing some kind of rocket. What that kind of rocket was, it was unsure. Um, And the Germans did have 50 different types of missile and development during the war. They had quite a lot. There were different types. There were air-to-air missiles, there were surface-launched missiles, there were anti-shipping missiles. The the actual flak rockets, the the surface-to-air ones, never got anywhere because there was protracted... um, development time, there were delays, there were problems with the engines, there was a whole you know, whole, whole uh, raft of things that went wrong, that they couldn't put them into service. And they were in specific testing areas as well. So the report, you might have got away with saying, oh, well, a report in a certain area might have been that, but you couldn't apply that logic to right across Europe. And actually, the, the reports in 1942, when the first mention of rockets comes about in the intelligence reports, the Germans didn't even have rockets then anyway. And if they did, there was only one particular type, and that was a decoy for the flares that the, the Allies were using to mark targets. And they had a decoy rocket which could go at about 6,000 feet and then deploy parachutes, flares, which would simulate you know, like a, as, a, as a decoy, uh, a fake flares, basically. But it wasn't widespread in u- widespread use either. So again, it was too low down. So you can't attribute that to some of the sightings in the intelligence reports we were saying they were seeing these things flying around at 20,000 feet, 25,000 feet. So they're not the same thing. So the question is, what are they? But you, so you can rule things out. But then it leaves you with, well, you know, what, what, what the hell's going on? Um, yeah, so there are rockets. But then actually you go forward a couple of years uh, to 1944, in the summer of 44, and the, Je- the Germans start 
deploying jets and rocket-powered aircraft, but just in the daytime. So therefore, you've got another element that you can you can understand the kind of the mindset in the in Allied intelligence. And they'll be going, well, we're going to see these at night sometime. And funny enough, you get to October 1944, and you've read the book, you'll see this, that the RAF crews, the gunners, start seeing, or reporting rather, encounters with mystery jets in about in the start in October 1944, and they go right through the end of the war. But at that time, the Germans weren't deploying the, uh, the Mechtonic 262 as a jet fighter at night any, in any case. The first unit only came on strength mid-December, and there was only one pilot who was qualified to fly the aircraft at night. And he spent most of the next month and a half training other pilots. They weren't even flying combat missions. And actually, when they did, they were restricted officially to the defense of Berlin because they were suffering night after night after night by mosquito fighter bomber attacks. And that's why the jets were actually built to fly at night, was to combat that particular menace. So they weren't even allowed to fly any over any part of Germany you know, other than Berlin. So that's so all these reports of mystery jets were actually over the Ruhr, which was several hundred, you know, a couple of hundred miles to the west. So they were jets. Again, there's the question, what were they? And then they also report this rocket-powered aircraft, the, the, the comet, seeing that at night as well, this little bat-shaped um, like object that was a very difficult aircraft to fly in the daytime. It was powered by a very vo uh, volatile fuels. Um, but they say that at night as well. Well, they can't have because it was never operated at night. It's too dangerous to fly in the day, never mind night. So again, what are they seeing? Are they just seeing things? But no, because actually in some cases, they say they shot them down. So that's another element thrown into all this crazy mix as well. You've, you've got all these elements of strange lights, strange rockets, strange jets. And now some of them, they're actually just exploding. You know, it, it's all completely crazy. <laughs> And this is a testament to your research, man. You knew the only pilot that knew how to fly at night was busy that month doing something else. And you knew that those jets didn't fly at night generally. And the only one, like I said, was busy. And then that they were only allowed to fly in a certain area. So then you were able to kind of look out at other places and go, okay, well, if we can rule that off the list, at least from official reports, because you can't rule it out 100%. Maybe there were some secret missions being flown. And again, they just told you that ah, the guy's on vacation or he's busy. So we, would, we wouldn't do that. Um, you know, so... Is, has there been a pattern that you found in all of the reports, because you do have the most reports of these through the longest time period um, that have the most infrequency, did you find that they only flew a certain time of day or the consistently time of day or a certain time of year as far as like winter versus spring, or was it just open season? So the actual, if you can imagine the subset of reports that I'm using in the book, that's all I can find. So if you go just on that alone, then you can... You can see there's hotspots in terms of the reporting, but that also could be biased based on the, the quality of the intelligence staff in the particular squadrons. As I said before, the pilots were reporting things, but then they were getting the responses from like, you know, old man, have you been drinking? That was a popular question in the RF. There was a lot of stigma back then as well, um, even though they knew that their colleagues had been seeing them and sometimes there was a reluctance to report them. Sometimes just because it, nothing, it didn't go anywhere, they never got any sort of, you know, uh, there was no comeback in terms of, yes, this is what they are, or thanks for the information, we'll let you know what happens. There was none of that. The Americans were a bit more... Um, they were less sensitive to the stigma. They actually did report things. And in one particular unit, as I mentioned, the intelligence officer actually compiled a list of all the crew's reports and then sent it up the chain. Um, it didn't get anywhere because they, they didn't know what to do with it. They thought it was just lights on a particular aircraft because the, the word came back down, well, which part of the aircraft are they seeing these lights on? Which right. just you know kind of misunderstood entirely what he was telling them. 
So, but if you look at these, say this subset of reports, yes, Western Germany in a triangle between Cologne, Aachen and the, and the Belgian border, that's one place, Northern Italy over the Po Valley, the Balkans, uh, and there are others as well. But really, we're only going on the reports we know about from the squadrons who probably did the best work in recording the information. Um, just as an example, the, the RAF squadron reports, when you look into the official records for each bomber squadron that was based in, Eng in England, let's say, that were flying over Germany. So cer certain units will break down the records in terms of each aircraft for each squadron for each night. And you'll get a, like a, maybe five or six lines from each aircraft saying, you know, the time they took off, time they landed, what time they dropped their bombs, uh, what, what the weather was like, uh, whether any night fighters and any other information, which is usually where these kind of things fall into. Other squadrons might have just had a summary for the raid, which covers all the aircraft and come in maybe two or three paragraphs, but there's no individual breakdown. And then for other squadrons, you're lucky to get two lines for the same information. So you've got to wonder, you know, these are the squadrons. What were they seeing? Because that information is not in the official records. And it's just down to the fact that was, was, you know, were the clerks, were they just too lazy to write it down? Or did the, the intelligence officers who were responsible for collecting this information didn't have the time or didn't have the inclination? You just wonder how much information was missing. Thankfully, we have pilot logbooks as well, which have cropped up from time to time. So that's you know, like your diary, um, you know, the unofficial diaries. Um, so you can find information in those, but those are few and far between. There will be loads of more out there, I'm sure. Uh, and I do put a plea in the book for people who you know have relatives who have served in the war uh, to go maybe have a look at that information and see see what you can find because I'm sure there'll be more inf you know, information and details contained in the, in those documents. Absolutely. And again, you've done a wonderful job on the flight logs and and reviewing those types of reports. Have you ever have you been able to cor uh, corroborate any air based with any ground based observations that you could tie to the same incident? So that, that's the thing you say because. In the terms, let's say the Foo Fighters, as they were called by the Americans, the, the 415th Night Fighter Squadron, which were based in eastern France around Nancy, they were seeing these things night after night after night in December 1944. Um, and also the 422nd Night Fighter Squadron, which were based in, in Belgium, a place called Ferenz, they were seeing them as well. Um, now, both crews were seeing these lights. And in one particular case, and it's mentioned in the book, the pilot radioed the ground station, the radar station on the ground, because bearing in mind these aircraft were being controlled by ground radar stations to within a few miles of a potential target. And then the onboard airborne radar, because it was very unsophisticated, would then take over. They only had a range of maybe five to eight miles. So the guy in the back of the aircraft you know, was hunched over a little set. It didn't even have the kind of revolving kind of display that you get on the modern you know, radars when you see an aircraft the control, you know, it goes bip, bip, kind of thing. It looked like an oscilloscope, and they had to try and decipher it to work out your know, distance, speed, and all that kind of thing. So it was very, very crude. But so th this pilot basically radioed the ground station to say, We've had something, you know, it's it's on our tail, it's gone off. What you know, can you see it? And they said, You know, you're on your own up there, there's nothing there. So there are no kind of you know, they weren't picked up on radar. Yeah, they weren't radar so, returned, which makes them even more mysterious. Because there are a lot yeah, of it does, doesn't it? Yeah, they get picked That's up right. on radar. And here's the thing about you know, here's the thing about the whole phenomenon. Other German secret weapons like the V1, the V2, the Allies knew about them through wrecks. 
by bits, pieces. That there was one crash. There was a V two crash in Sweden uh, on, on an island just off Sweden. Uh, there was one crash in Poland that the Polish resistance got a hold of and, and managed to smuggle the wreckage parts of the wreckage back to Britain. V ones they knew about through the French resistance before they were all, uh, deployed operationally against Britain. So Allied intelligence actually had proper human signals or actual physical intelligence to know what these things were in advance. The Foo Fighters are something different. different. They, they were hamstrung by the fact that it was nothing physical. It was just the pilot's reports. You know, you didn't have a crash one, for instance. You know, there was nothing like that. They couldn't get their hands on the technology to try and work out what the hell was going on. And we're still in the dark as far as that's concerned because, you know, nothing's come to light in that respect. So it's incredibly weird. So there's another kind of little, you know, sort of um, mystery yeah. Absolutely. So out of all the reports, 0% of Foo Fighters were able to be returned on radar? So as far as I'm aware, there, ha- there are stories in the book about thing- aircraft that were chasing after targets, which they never could catch up with. And they were you know, going here, then everywhere. In Italy, for instance, there's a story about a mosquito, um, a, a crew of a mosquito night fighter. And they were, I think, I believe they were American as well, because they were using um, mosquitoes that were supplied by the British to the Americans in, in Italy. And they were vectored after target after target. And the target was just eluding them all the time. It was too fast. A mosquito was a very fast aircraft. And the Germans didn't deploy deployed jets to Italy, apart from three reconnaissance aircraft in March 1945, and this was in 1944. So you have to wonder what that aircraft was, if it was an aircraft. So yes, you could probably argue that maybe some of them were picked up on radar, but there's no hard and fast evidence for that. But whatever that was, it was fast enough to elude a mosquito, and that was pretty good going for an Axis aircraft. Um, So again, what was that? But most of the times when they saw these lights, whether it was in Italy or over Belgium, France, or Germany, or even over the Eastern Front, as far as we're aware, they weren't picked up on radar. Were any of the pilots reporting uh, craft along with the Foo Fighters as well, like a solid metallic disc and all that? Okay. Yeah. So um, there's a famous report. Actually, this did come to light before 1905 when some of these reports, um, you know, more reports came to light. Uh, There was a a bombing raid in November 1942. It was a a group of British bombers who were flying to northern Italy round round the side of the the French Alps to get there to bomb uh, an engine factory in Turin. And over the Alps or the Italian Alps, Twice in the same night, they saw a 200-foot-long object, a torpedo-shaped object, with portals along the side of it. Illuminated from the inside? It just said, they just said, the, the report just says there were portals, kind of, you know, openings. Um, they saw it, first of all, flying, you know, near the aircraft, but the second time they saw it flying along a mountain valley. So, but two different uh, periods of time spread maybe half an hour apart or something. I can't, I can't remember the exact time frame, but it was certainly twice in the same night. And then there was other reports of very, very large objects. Uh, there's also a report of just a very large light that followed an anti-submarine aircraft over the Bay of Biscay. It was actually an American aircraft um, in November 1942 as well. Uh, it was an Amer- uh, U.S. Army Air Force aircraft, which was given that role before the because the U.S. Navy didn't send aircraft to to Britain uh, until about six months later. So, but yeah, that's another story as well. Photographs were supposed to be taken of that object, but they've never been discovered. They've never been located. 
<laughs> I love this, man. You are absolutely fascinating. So, <clears throat> of course, guys, uh, here is the book for the video audience. I will, of course, link this down in the show notes. Highly, highly recommended. If you got some time to spend on it, you this is an incredible read, man. You've got just so many wonderful accounts. Again, the way that you tie all this together is very impressive. So, uh, let, let's have some fun with this, okay? Put the researcher hat off. Uh, let's okay. speculate wildly. Let's have some fun. So, not holding you to any ideal. If you had Thanks. a preference, if you had just a choice, what's your favorite explanation for this stuff? My my favorite one, if 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 I had to go and say this is the one I'd love to have, would be time travelers from the future. Right. Because that's what I would want. That's what I would want to do. If you could like give me a machine right now to say, when do you want to go back in history, Graham? What do you want to look at? That's the period I'll be looking at because that's the time I'm interested in and I've been interested in all pretty much all my life. So I'd want to see the kind of battles unfold. I'd want to see you know, the aerial war over Europe. I want to see some of the battles on the Eastern Front. Uh, there's actually a good story from one of the battles there about something that was watching uh, a battle from overhead and it was watching the aircraft dogfighting below it and the, and the battle on the ground below. So that's what I'd want to do. Now, whether that's the case... Well, it's it's a good theory as any, isn't it? But you know, it could be it could be um, you know people from elsewhere or, or things from elsewhere looking at us and watching, as we said before, about watching a warlike species. Yeah, you name it, it's a good enough theory. You know, it, it's as good as any other. Let's put it that way. You know, uh, well, let's take it even further. How about that? So let's <laughs> say that Foo Fighters are you from the future because time travel has been in, been created, but the way in which we time travel is to be, you know, in this little ball or this orb, or maybe it's even an artifact. Maybe it's a, a artifact of time travel, how we have to do it, maybe in the near future, that you send basically like an orb that you look through and you're controlling, you're doing all of it, but you're not necessarily locally there. Now, the ironic part about this would be, of course, you would go to this time period because this is what fascinates you. The reason it fascinates you is because of all the German technology and the Foo Fighters themselves. So therefore... In this crazy model that we've just created here, you actually go back in time or once time travel is developed, you go back in time to see a period that you're attracted to because of the fact that you're there observing it in the past from the future. And it's this this cyclical thing to where you have to go investigate yourself investigating this time. God, I love time travel, man. I That's one yeah. of my favorites, too. Paradoxes. <laughs> Gotta love it. Gotta love it, man. Um, okay, now I like the uh, time travel thing, and you know, Dr. Michael P. Masters, of course, uh, Diane Tessman, Alan Butler have written great books on on this subject, and it is one of my favorite as well. Uh, and if you would have asked me this six months ago, that's what I would have picked too. It's still a tie for first with me, uh, but interdimensional, I think, is very okay. cool uh, because that explains it can explain when you viewed through that lens a variety of phenomena that probably all have to do with one another. They're all as valid as each other, right? Really, because we're, so we're not experts. We don't know what's going on. It could be something else completely that nobody's considered. Absolutely. But the, that's, but the fun thing is that you can speculate without any kind of obligation as to that has to be the truth. And I don't want to be the person who, um, you know, I'm going to put my researcher hat on again. Sorry. Um, that's okay. But, um, you know, I don't want to be the person who then says it's this and then has to then defend it five years down the line when the information changes and comes up with some crazy narrative and starts, you know, I start negotiating like different kind of corners and all the rest of it to try and work myself down this road so I can fulfill all these, you know, little niches and go, yeah, it's because of that. Oh no, it's because of this. It, it, would, it would drive me insane. So I'd rather just go, look, I don't know what it is. I can probably tell you what it's not, but that's as far as I can go. 
uh, and I'm happy with that and I'm comfortable. Um, yes, okay, I can come on to a show like yours and, and have a bit of fun and say, it's possibly time travellers, but if you want to pin me down, I'm, I'm going to revert to type. I'm sorry, I'm going to say, and that's okay. I don't know. <laughs> that, well, that's why I had the caveat of take your researcher hat off. You know, I kind of had to get shift you out of that mode because me personally, I'll just take that right-hand turn and you'll, you're will you just like, where, where do we come from with this? And, and it's awesome. But I do like, and of course, we're not holding you to any of your theories that you'd rather them be. Um, but I, I like this, man. So do you think that there's anything to the Fourth Reich thing uh, that maybe the Germans lost, but the Nazis won, and then therefore they've perpetuated this kind of uh, whatever we see the world as today? I think we give them too much credit. Um, a lot of people seem to think that they were the be all and end all of everything in terms of how organization work uh, and how you know effective military operations were and all the rest of it. But actually, when you read a lot about it, they, they, were, they had a huge amount of human failings, jealousy, petty rivalry, um, just general lack of preparedness. So they're not the supermen that people thought they were. Now, in terms of the technology transfers, certainly they were in demand. But whether or not that translated to some kind of overarching um your know, organization that you know lasted beyond the end of the war i don't think so i i, th- I think that is crediting them with too much um but yes the technology and the and the knowledge was certainly tapped into that that's a that's a fact you know you can't get around that uh, but i think to take it a bit further than that I think people might have thought is a good. It, it, it comes across as maybe a good idea in terms of it, it, how plausible it might be, but I think when if you look into it a bit more, then I think again it's one of these kind of smoke and mirrors things. You know, you you, you only get so far where where you just run out of actually proof, or rather, there's just none to start with, um, and you, you just start running around in circles, and that's when people start making things up to try and suit narratives. Um, and that's when I sort of go, okay, right, I've, I've had enough, thanks. <laughs> and I start walk, and I walk, and I walk, and I walk, I walk away. Then you know, so, but I'll take it so far. And don't get me wrong, as I say, I'll read things and I'll, I'll entertain people because actually, I'm, you know, if somebody came to me with a plausible and actually some proof, and went, there you go, Graham. You know, that actually is the reason why. And it's something I'll go, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. Then yeah, I'll hold my hands up and go, yeah, I might be wrong on this. You can be right, but. I've yet, to, I've yet to got, I've yet to get that bit yet. I'm afraid. So, you know, and this is why I asked uh, is because I'm with you on this. I think that it's either one of two things. There's, it's either absolutely extreme and absolutely that's what's happening. And there's this crazy secret space program with all this technology and us mere mortals down here, us masses, right? Just kind of still, you know, put gas in our car to drive around and stuff, right? But um, there's another part of me, and, I'm, and this is what's fun about this kind of idea as well, is it that says that they just make up these stories to make themselves seem more omnipotent or powerful or, <clears throat> excuse me, or in control when they're really not. And so what they have is they've, they've hijacked basically an actual mystery in this place and have said, yeah, yeah, that's possibly us, or have slipped in enough things to plant the seed that that's possible. And therefore people are like, oh, don't mess with them, man. They have UFOs. They have, you know, all this stuff. But in reality, they don't know what the hell it is. I mean, there's, there's part of me that thinks that they're, like you said, disorganized, we'll say big dummies, um, and that they couldn't possibly do that this, right? It's it's either way. Now, the research has led you to the latter on that, um, but I still kind of uh, speculate wildly on the other side, on the former uh, example to that, to say, well, maybe, you know, and it's, again, fun. I think that that's what it is. It is. It's, it's fun. You're like, secret space yeah. program? Hell yeah, let's do it, right? So, do you think that there's anything to, like, a breakaway civilization or something like that? Like a secret space program? 
the secret space program, I have a hard time, have a hard job believing it because of maybe how much we've been involved in trying to hide it. Um, I think that it would have, there would have been the cracks would have showed by now. It's like the, the kind of people who say, oh, the moon landings didn't happen. You know, it, it's, it's things like that. The, the amount of work that you need to be able to hide something of that magnitude, I, it's again, it's this kind of thing of, you know, giving people credit for too much. Uh, I just don't think it's possible. Um, you know, people are mortal. Uh, they make mistakes. They, they slip up. And I don't think you could have this coherent narrative that would stay in place for so long. Uh, I think people would see through it. Um, so, yeah, I, I have a hard time believing things like that. But again, say if somebody came to me in, in tomorrow and said, look, you know, you go, Graham, here's, here's the categorical proof and I can't shoot holes in it, then yeah, fine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm wrong. You're right. So, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be the first to hold my hands up and say, yeah, sorry, I got that completely wrong, but uh, I'm not there yet. I, I tend to lean on that as well, because again, I think that people just want to talk about stuff. They're like, Hey dude, I'm checking on, and especially something of that magnitude. Now, uh, when you look at things like uh, compartmentalization again, I mean, even that is so hard to believe. It's not improbable. It's well, it's improbable, but it's not impossible, right? It's not likely, but it could happen, you know, uh, or you just let a few people know and then just uh, go bury them out in the desert when they're they're done with their job, right? Uh, training accidents happen all the time. So um, what what do we have to look forward to uh, in future work for me, brother? So you'll see from the title of the book that I only looked at the European cases during the war. There are plenty of cases from the Pacific War, and that's the bit I'm working on next. So I'm at the initial stages of looking into very, the, the kind of records that I look for this one uh, to see what kind of scale and you know, the ge- geographical scale, but also the time frame that was involved there. It'll be a similar kind of book, I'm afraid, but it'll, <laughs> it'll deal, with, it'll, it'll deal the, with those particular cases, but it won't have the Nazi flying saucer you know, element in it, uh, it, it might have some other stuff because who knows where it will take me. I'm the, per- I'm the kind of person who, you know, I go where the data takes me. So I can't say at the moment what the book will pan out to be, but I will do the research, you know, that it was warranted and then I'll see what I come up with. And that's all I can promise at the moment. Well, whatever you come up with next, I know it's going to be amazing, and I'm looking forward to that. Uh, and so, um, guys, make sure to check out the show notes, of course, for UFOs Before Roswell, European Foo Fighters, 1942-1945. Uh, Graham, you're a badass, man. Uh, if I don't say, mind saying so myself, you are awesome. Uh, I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Um, before we close out here, was there anything else you wanted to touch on? There's one particular thing I'd like to say before um, before I close. There's three people I'd like to thank um, for in, in connection with the book. The, the first two are Dan Zetterstrom and Olaf Rockner. Uh, for people who are on, on UFO Twitter, they'll know who they are. Uh, they're the people who created that awesome cover which on, on the book. Um, I was telling yeah. the wife about this in the mat. I mean, just their cover, everything about this, man, is so cool. So that particular cover is a case that's covered in the book. And it's from a, a Wellington bomber crew who opened fire at a light and nothing happened. So that, that is possibly, you know, the, it's a really, really good case. So they came up with that artwork in secret. They didn't even tell me they were doing it. I found out you know, a few weeks afterwards when I was going to ask Dan to say, would you consider doing the cover? Oh, we've already got one. In co- yeah, we're already doing one. <laughs> <laughs> this is a testament so to that, you, oh, man. People want to see you succeed. This is one of my favorite. I mean, the information, of course, but this is an awesome cover. So they did a great work. Yeah, they did. So the, other, the third person is actually on the cover there, Sean Cahill, the, um, one of the witnesses to the 2004, um, you know, the Nimitz encounters. Um, 
I, it was a kind of like punching above my weight kind of thing, you know, asking him in the first place. But he said yes. And I didn't realize that he had this personal connection with the Foo Fighters, um, which he's never ever explained. He's never told anybody else before, certainly not in public. But, it, you know, he, he, he was generous enough to, to give me that information uh, in, in, in the in the form of a forward so i am incredibly grateful to sean as well for, for doing that for me and it, it just sets the book off nicely um he's got a real way with words uh, and you know sean's one of those people that you know when he speaks you know people listen so uh it was uh it was it was wonderful really to get his, his involvement in the book and his blessing so I'm, I'm really thankful for him as well and to everybody else in ufo twitter and beyond who gave me words of support and encouragement when they knew i was writing the book uh, i had i had a piece published in the debrief back in April this year, which uh, Chris Mellon, he, he commented on on Twitter. Uh, he, he liked what I've written. So that was a, quite a boost as well. So all those people, you know, everybody who's, who said something and, and mentioned something and, and, and just, you know, chivered uh, you know, me along a bit, then, you know, thank you. And, and thanks to people like yourself who have given me the platform to also speak on the subject afterwards, because it's something that people don't talk about very much. They like all the other things, you know, they, they like the Tic Tacs, they like the flying saucers, all, all that kind of thing. Foo Fighters generally don't get a look in. So I'm pleased to be able to maybe rectify that kind of imbalance a little bit. So yeah, thanks. Thanks very much. Oh, are you kidding me? No, this is an honor all on this side, but I'm with you on this. I think that you, uh, Foo Fighters are kind of like the crop circle phenomena. You know, it's one of those things that's not focused on, but when you take another look at it, or especially the kind of look that you did in your book, unbelievable. It just, it sets the mind wild. It's just, whimsical it shows you that <clears throat> this place is so cool and there are so many mysteries here uh, and you did a wonderful job like i said of course i will be linking all of the ways to find this and yourself uh, and some ufo twitter stuff as well of course man down in the uh, show thank notes you. so y'all go check that out uh, follow up with graham he does a wonderful job and i can't thank you enough man for your time and your expertise and uh coming on and especially for taking that researcher hat off and going down some rabbit holes with me i appreciate oh, that, i don't man. mind doing that yeah <laughs> and thanks for buying the book as well and thanks for reading it and thanks for enjoying it as well oh absolutely uh, it came in and the wife was like what's this i was like i'm interviewing him it's so cool and she was like god i love this i was like i know so uh, oh. i'll let her thumb through it uh, after i completely finish it so um again my friend thank you thank you so much let's do this again yeah wonderful thanks again cheers want to give a huge shout out to Graham Rendell for spending some time with us on the show. His book, of course, UFOs Before Roswell, European Foo Fighters, 1940 to 1945, an incredible read, is linked down in the show notes. Uh, like I said, guys, the research that he did is phenomenal. I highly, highly recommend this book. Uh, that's why we had him on, because he's fantastic and he wrote an incredible book, and he's got some awesome stuff coming up in the future that we will definitely be looking forward to. So uh, again, down in the show notes, guys, is where you can find all of his stuff also down there. Uh, the music that you're hearing underneath this is Vinny the Saint, great friend of mine. He makes some incredible music. Uh, go check the show notes on how to contact him. Uh, he would love to do some music for you as well. So go check that out, guys. Uh, also linked down there is the website, uh, expandingrealitypodcast.com. Links to all the socials. You can. It's kind of a hub for everything, right? So you just go down there. All the videos are located there as well. Um, it also has the links for merchandise, which is through T Public, which we're very excited about. They do all kinds of cool stuff. And then also Rockfin for our premium uh, content, which has a ton of other content creators, premium stuff on there as well. Could not be happier that we are a part of that incredible platform. So y'all make sure to check out the links in the bottom of the show notes for more information on Graham and this show in particular. Uh, okay, so go out into this crazy, mysteriously awesome place this week, guys. 
Um, pick up a piece of litter, of course. Uh, don't litter in the first place. That would be incredibly dope of you. And then uh, buy a coffee or a meal or a bottle of water or something like that. Book a stamps. It doesn't have to be crazy, but it makes a crazy cool impact on everyone around you. And especially you. Like I said, um, I highly uh, approve of this practice because it's so effective for the ripple effects that translate into everybody's world, even something that small. Opening a door for someone, all of that stuff, guys. So, of course, be nice to every entity, animal, person, human, everything that you come across. If you come across a Foo Fighter, be nice. Uh, they're probably pretty cool and chill, and they just want to kind of check you out anyway. Um, get out of the left-hand lane, of course, it's annoying, and then uh, go out into this beautiful, big, amazing place, whatever the hell this thing is, and y'all just be good to one another. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.